The Old Testament reading for today is Genesis 14, that is the sermon text, and the New Testament reading is Hebrews 6, 13, all the way to 7, 17. And so we have a bit of scripture reading to do this morning, but I think it's important that we do it. I would encourage you to pay careful attention to the reading of God's holy word. It is God's inspired word that we are now giving our attention to. Genesis 14, verse 1. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, and then Kadalomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goidim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shimabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kadalaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, King Kadalaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim, Ashtroth, Kirnaim, and Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva, Kirathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tema'ar. I'm having a hard time again with these brothers and sisters. I do practice them, I promise you. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Catalomar, king of Elam. Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of, of, of Eleazar. <laughs> Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was filled with Bedouin pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and they went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, that is up to the north, about 120 miles. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Heboah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Catalomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, 
that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Now let us go to Hebrews chapter 6 and look at verses 13 all the way to verse 17 of chapter 7. Hebrews 6, 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heir of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham he apportioned a tenth of everything, he is first. Excuse me, let me read that again. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had, paid, who had the promises." It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
So far the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord help us to understand the scriptures and to apply them to our lives today. I find the story of Genesis 14 to be fascinating, but I will admit that I also find it a bit difficult to preach. Uh, There is a lot about this text, uh, the text in Genesis 14, uh, that is mysterious. Uh, The names and places are ancient and foreign. And again, as you have witnessed, they are difficult to say. Uh, This figure named Melchizedek is particularly mysterious. He appears out of nowhere. And yet, he is said to be a priest of God Most High. He blesses Abram and even receives tithes from him. Uh, Frankly, I I think it is easy for modern day Christians to read this story, the story of Genesis 14, and to brush it aside as being relatively insignificant in comparison to the passages that surround it in the book of Genesis. But I want you to take special note of this. The rest of Scripture does not dismiss Genesis 14 as insignificant, but rather highlights it. Scripture passages written later look back upon the story of Genesis 14, and in particular this figure Melchizedek, and they see the Christ there. Indeed, this passage is crucial for our understanding of of the Christian faith and of the nature of the New Covenant. Psalm 110 is a very famous psalm. It's a messianic psalm, meaning that it speaks directly concerning the Messiah who was to come. Psalm 110 is quoted very often in the New Testament, I think more than any other psalm. And the New Testament applies 110 to Jesus and claims that it is fulfilled by Him. Jesus is the Messiah of whom Psalm 110 spoke. And notice what that psalm says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, that is the Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this famous Messianic psalm puts it this way, that when the Messiah comes, he will be a priest, but not after the order of Aaron and Levi, as it was under the old covenant, the old Mosaic covenant, but the Messiah will be a priest forever after the order or of the type of Melchizedek. And so here I am simply drawing your attention to the fact that the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did not think that the narrative of Genesis 14 was insignificant. Instead, he highlighted that mysterious figure, Melchizedek, who just appears out of nowhere in the narrative of Genesis and claims that he was a type of the Christ to come. When the Christ came, he would be like Melchizedek somehow. He would be a priest like him and not a priest like Aaron or Levi and those who descended from them. The Christ, the Messiah, when He finally came, would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. When I read from Hebrews chapters 6 and 7 just a short time ago, I'm sure that you noticed how the writer to the Hebrews also makes much of Melchizedek. That book of Hebrews is so important to us theologically. You understand what the writer to the Hebrews was doing He was writing to primarily Jewish Christians. They had converted from 
Judaism to Christianity. Uh, another way to put it is they were Jews who believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. But they were then struggling as they were suffering persecution, as they were being alienated by their family and friends, as they were looking at the temple worship that was still going on. They were beginning to wonder, why have we abandoned all of that? Right? And the writer to the Hebrews is seeking to persuade them to remain in Christ. And he's arguing that, yes, this Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the Christ. And he makes much of Melchizedek in his argument. He did not brush the story of Genesis 14 to the side, but saw it as being very significant. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews focused on Genesis 14, and in particular that mysterious figure Melchizedek, to argue for the truthfulness of the Christian faith and the superiority of the New Covenant over the old Mosaic order. I read only Hebrews 6.13-7.17, through 7, 17, and even that was a lot to read on this, on this Sunday morning. But the author actually focuses upon Melchizedek from the beginning of chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 7. Three whole chapters, 5, 6, and 7, he devotes to this mysterious figure named Melchizedek. And so what is the point that I am making in this introduction I am saying that instead of deciding for ourselves what is significant and what is insignificant, we should pay attention to what the writers of Holy Scripture say is significant. What we see or do not see with our eyes matters little. What matters is what the Holy Spirit reveals. And the Holy Spirit has inspired the writers of Holy Scripture to see this passage, Genesis 14, and in particular the mysterious man Melchizedek, as being very important. He was a type of the Christ who is to come. Christ, when He came, would be like Him in some way. And so let us now turn our attention to the text of Genesis 14 and say a few words about the situation which led to the interaction between Melchizedek and Abram. Uh, Remember that Abram had settled in Hebron, that is right smack in the middle of Canaan the land which was promised to him, which is Israel today. It was that land that had been promised to Abram, and he settled there right smack in the middle of it. And remember that Lot, Abram's nephew, had separated from Abram and settled down near the city of Sodom, which was probably located to the south and east of the Dead Sea. One day, four powerful kings from the east, that is, from the land that Abram and Lot had left, I think that is significant, Uh, They waged war against five kings in the region where Lot had settled. Uh, The four kings from the east were powerful. This is especially true of Ketelomar. The five kings of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim, and and Bela, had for twelve years lived in subjection to this powerful king. But evidently they had rebelled. Ketelomar would have none of it, and so he formed this confederation, and he began to wreak havoc in the region, and he conquered one king after another, one nation after another. Uh, Brothers and sisters, this is how things have been in the world ever since the fall. Kings rise and they fall. They conquer and they tend to oppress. There are Wars and rumors of wars, Christ Himself said that this is how things would be in the world. And He encouraged us, saying, See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All, things, all these are but the beginning of birth pains, Matthew 24, 6-10. through 10. 
We should not be alarmed, though, he says. And why is that? Because our God, as we will learn in this text, is Lord Most High. He is the Sovereign One. He is the King of Kings, and He is the Lord of Lords. I think it is interesting to notice that this story concerning the conquest of the four powerful kings from the east against the five kings of the west would not have been mentioned at all in the pages of Holy Scripture, were it not for the fact that their campaign came into contact with Lot, who was allied with Abram, God's chosen man. Think of that for a moment. These were big figures in the ancient world, significant nations who accomplished what the world would see as very significant things, and yet all that they did in their their conquest and in their conquering would not have been mentioned at all were it not for the fact that they impacted, came into contact with Lot, who was allied with Abram, God's chosen man. As I consider this, I'm I'm reminded that, that there is world history and there is also redemptive history. Of course, the two are always interconnected, and I am speaking in an overly simplistic manner here. But I think it is important to make the distinction between the two. There is world history and there is redemptive history. What do I mean by that? When I speak of world history, I speak of the history that the historians typically write. Historians tend to focus upon the big events and the big figures. And of course, I'm speaking very generally here. I know I'm oversimplifying things. But if we take this episode as a case in point, the big story to the historian is Catalomar and his allies and their impressive campaign in the land of Canaan. That's the big story, isn't it? That's the big news of the day. That's the headline story of the day. But when we consider the same episode from the perspective of redemptive history, and by redemptive history I mean the history of God's redeeming activities within the world, we see that these powerful kings are nothing but a backstory. They just serve as a backdrop for the important thing from God's perspective. They are mentioned only because they happen to come into contact with Lot, who is allied with Abram, who is God's chosen man. Think of how utterly insignificant Lot and even Abram were from a worldly perspective when compared with the great nations that surround them. They were nobodies. From the world's point of view, they were, they were nothing. These kings were the superstars. They were the powerful men who were to be noticed and who were to be feared. They were the story. But from God's perspective, Abram was the story. For he had chosen to establish his kingdom through him. And I think there is a lesson to be learned from this, friends. We need to have God's perspective concerning world events and the big players on the world stage. How easy it is for the Christian to see the world just as the world sees it and to lose sight of God's perspective. How easy it is to fear the powerful and to grow far too impressed with the famous and the influential and to forget that before God they are nothing. God is always working in the world, but often He is working through weak, unimpressive, and insignificant people and institutions. 
We'll say a little bit more about this later. But I think this is the lesson to be learned. We need to have God's perspective on things. The story here in Genesis 14 is Abram and Lot. And not these powerful nations. They serve as a backdrop for the main story as God is telling it. The only reason these kings are mentioned is because their conflict impacted Lot. And when Lot was impacted, so too was Abram. Lot had moved away from Abram and towards Sodom. The fertile land caught his eye, remember. Their prosperous society grabbed his attention, and so off he went. But Catalomar and his allies came against the king of Sodom. Lot, his family, and his possessions were also carried away. Is this not further evidence, brothers and sisters, that Lot had indeed made a poor choice when he separated from Abram as far as he did? Lot was lured away by the world. And he found himself taken captive by the world. I'm not saying that Lot was utterly faithless. Uh, Further on in Genesis, we will learn that Lot was still considered righteous when compared to the sinners of Sodom. But it does appear that he followed to one degree or another the lust of his eyes and was for a time overtaken by the world. There is a warning, I think, to Christians in the story of Lot. Even the righteous can, from time to time, be lured away by the world. But may it never be true of any of us. Now that the stage has been set, let's consider Abram's rescue of Lot. In verses 13 through 16, we read, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. That's a rather precise number, isn't it? And went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. This is truly extraordinary, isn't it? Obviously, the Lord had blessed Abram. He had allies in the land, we learn. His little clan had grown so much that he was able to wage a campaign against the four kings who had previously run unabated through the eastern parts of Canaan. And the Lord gave Abram success in these endeavors. He journeyed over a hundred miles to the north and east, attacked uh, the, the kings, and set the captives free. Clearly, God had by this time blessed Abram tremendously. Uh, This campaign of Abram's must be considered, I think, in light of God's promises that were made to him, as recorded back in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. We must remember and not forget as as long as we are considering the life of Abram, what the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And here in this Genesis 14 narrative, we see that the fulfillment to these promises were beginning to take shape. It was still very early in, in the multiplication of Abraham's people and the prosperity of Abram were still very, very small when compared to what it would eventually be in the days of Moses and David and eventually the Christ. But nevertheless, Abram was given a small taste here in this episode of the promises of God being fulfilled in him. 
Here Abram was given a small taste, a foretaste, of the good things yet to come in the future. The little insignificant Abram was in this moment thrust onto the stage of world history and was found to be victorious. He defeated the wicked kings and he set the captives free. I I think there is an image here for us in this little episode of what would be accomplished through Abram's descendants on a much greater level. And I think it is entirely reasonable to see in this event, the event of Abraham's defeat of the kings and his setting the captives free, a little miniature picture of what would eventually be accomplished by the Christ, who is Abram's true seed. Abram's true seed was the Christ, and what he would accomplish would be this, but on a much greater scale. Abram defeated four wicked kings. Uh, By the way, some think that these four kings in Genesis 14 correspond to the four nations of Daniel chapter 7. And I think it is possible, but I'm going to leave it to you to explore that on your own, for we do not have the time here. But it is an interesting observation. But when the Christ would come, who is Abram's true seed and true son, he would defeat not just four kings, but he would defeat sin, death, the evil one himself, and he would be given authority over all things in heaven and on earth. The Christ, who is Abram's true seed, would truly set the captives free. And I am saying that this little episode in Genesis 14 concerning Abram's journey to the north, his victory over these four kings, and his leading uh, the captives free, that is, Lot and his family, even many Gentiles and pagans were set free by Abram, notice. I am saying that this little episode really has to do with Christ and the redemption that would be accomplished by Him. He was a type of Savior, Abram was. He was a type of Savior in this moment. Not only to his kinsmen according to the flesh, that is Lot, but also to many Gentiles. And in this way, he is a type of the Christ who was to come. The remainder of this passage is truly fascinating. And it is the portion that the rest of Scripture makes much of, as I have already said. When Abram returned from this battle with the kings, he was met by two figures, we are told. One, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and two, the king of Sodom. And I want you to notice that the attitude of these two figures towards Abram could not have been more different. And I think we should take note of this. Two figures meet Abram, they speak to him, but their attitudes are very different. Let us consider, first of all, the interaction between Abram and the king of Sodom. In verse 17, we read, Abram, after his return from the defeat of Catalamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley, Genesis 14, 17. And in verse 21, we find the rest of, the king, of, of what the king of Sodom had to say to Abram. He said this to him, notice how terse this is. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself, he says, and nothing more. The curtness of the statement is to be noted. The king did not thank Abram. He did not bless Abram. He only said, go ahead and keep the possessions. Just give me the people, and I'll go on my way. Abram refused to take a thing from the king of Sodom. 
Let it be said that the king of Sodom, uh, lest it be said that the king of Sodom made him rich. I contrast that with the fact that Abram's wealth, wealth was increased greatly by Pharaoh's gifts as he, as he came out of Egypt before. Do you remember that? It seems to me that Abram has grown in the faith a bit by this time. He is here found trusting the Lord. He is refusing to cooperate at all with this wicked king. He will not receive anything at all from him, lest it be suggested uh, that the two were in some kind of alliance with one another. But there was another king that came out to meet Abram as he returned from the slaughter of the kings, and his name was Melchizedek. I want you to notice five things about Melchizedek. First of all, notice that Melchizedek was king of Salem. He was the king of righteousness, for that is what Melchizedek means. His name means righteous. So he was a righteous king. He was also the king of peace, for that is what Salem means. It means peace. And so here we have in this king a righteous king and a king of peace. Uh, Salem is most likely an old name for Jerusalem. Uh, you can look this up in Psalm 76.2, which refers to Jerusalem by this name. His abode has been established in Salem his dwelling place in Zion. It's clearly a reference to Jerusalem here and the temple of God being established in that place, but it is using this older name, Salem. I don't know exactly how this came to be, but eventually Salem became Jerusalem in time. And these things can be studied and considered as to how the name changed over time. But that is where this king was probably from, what would later become Jerusalem. Melchizedek, was a king of righteousness and a king of peace. He was the king of that city that would eventually become Jerusalem. Two, he was also a priest of the Most High God. Christ is a priest of this order, we are told, by Psalm 110 and the book of Hebrews, chapters 5 through 7. Melchizedek was therefore, notice, a priest-king. And in Christ, we see that the offices of prophet, priest, and king are all joined into one. We should remember that under the old Mosaic economy, those offices were distinct. There were prophets, and there were priests, and there were kings. But in Christ, we find that He is the prophet, the priest, and He is the king. And so in this way, He is like Melchizedek. Melchizedek was both a prophet, I mean, excuse me, Melchizedek was both a priest and he was a king, like Christ. Three, notice that Melchizedek appeared out of nowhere, it seems. This is why the book of Hebrews emphasizes that this Melchizedek, he had no genealogy, no beginning, and no end. Now, some have taken that quite literally to suggest that Melchizedek is something other than human. That literally he had no parents and he had no beginning and end. It's, I think, a ridiculous notion. What the writer to the Hebrews is doing is he's making note of the fact that no genealogy of Melchizedek is listed in the Genesis narrative. Therefore, he became a king and a priest not uh, through descent, not by way of genealogy, the way that Aaron and Levi and the priests under the old Mosaic economy took the office of priest. This is different. He must have became priest by the direct appointment of God. It does not even appear that he was a Hebrew. In fact, he was dwelling in the land of Canaan, in Salem, what would later become Jerusalem. But at that point in time, it was a pagan place. Uh, 
And yet it appears that God called this man to be a king of righteousness and peace, a priest of God Most High, out of the darkness of that place. He is not like Aaron or Levi, who took office by way of genealogy, but he was simply appointed to the office directly by God. And this too must be said regarding uh, the priesthood of Christ. He was of the tribe of Judah, and the writer to the book of to the writer to the Hebrews noted this. Uh, there are no priests that come out of the tribe of Judah, and yet Christ is the great high priest. How could that be? By the direct appointment of God. And so Melchizedek is a type of Christ in this respect. No genealogy is listed, no beginning, no end. Uh, this is especially true of Christ, supremely so. For notice that Melchizedek blessed Abram. This is very important to notice. Melchizedek blessed Abram. Who blesses whom? The lesser or the greater? Is it not the greater who blesses the lesser? And so here we see that this Melchizedek was greater than Abram. Isn't that odd? Isn't that mysterious? The whole focus is on Abram, is it not? Abram was called to leave his land and to go to one that would be shown to him. Out of him would be made a great nation. Abram is the father of our faith. And yet we find here that as the two come into contact with one another, who takes the superior position? It is Melchizedek, the the, the king of Salem, who takes the superior position. Uh, Brothers and sisters, this is massively important for our understanding of the Christian faith. Why would the writer to the Hebrews make such an emphasis upon this? It's because he was speaking... to to Jewish people who had this viewpoint that God's purpose all along was to bless Israel as a nation, that perhaps the worship of God would always be centered upon the temple in Jerusalem. It's all about physical descent from Abram after all. They would say it's about genealogy. It's about ethnicity. I think they were struggling with these things. And yet what does the writer to the Hebrews say? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Even in the days of Abram, there was one greater than him, and he was no Hebrew. He was probably a descendant of Japheth, in fact. He was living amongst the Canaanites, and God called him out of that darkness to serve him as a priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek blessed Abram, the greater, blessing the lesser. What did he do? First of all, he brought out bread and wine to refresh Abram and his men. Is this an allusion to the Lord's Supper, I wonder? Commentators have wrestled with this. It was not uncommon for kings to bless in this way. If if you were leading your troops back from a great battle, I'm sure you would be happy to receive bread and wine. And and in fact, on the most basic level, that is what is going on here. Um, The king of Sodom came out to meet with Abram. He did not bring anything for him. He didn't bring bread or water to him. He just said, give me the people, take the possessions for yourself. But here we see that Melchizedek knows that there is something great about Abram. Uh, There is something unique that this man is blessed of the Lord. And so he comes not empty-handed, but he comes to refresh him with bread and wine. It's as if he has a fellowship meal with Abram to encourage him. And he blessed him saying, blessed be Abram by God most high. He recognized that the blessing of God was upon Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, and this God Most High is possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. 
What an appropriate name for God in this context. He is not like the God, the gods of the nations who are no gods at all, but He is God Most High. The lesser is blessed by the greater. And remember that those who bless Abram will be blessed according to the promises of God. And so Melchizedek's blessing of Abram does set the stage for the city of Jerusalem to eventually become the seat of worship and authority within God's earthly kingdom, I I think. There is a story that is developing here. Fifthly, notice that Abram, in turn, gave Melchizedek a tenth of all of the spoils. Uh, This is what the writer to the Hebrews makes much of. His argument is that the new covenant is better than the old, and that the law of Moses has passed away now that the Christ has come. That is the argument he is making. And he supports his claim by arguing that Melchizedek was greater than Abram. Therefore, Melchizedek was greater than Aaron and Levi, who came from Abram. They were priests in the line of Aaron who served under the old covenant and under Moses generation after generation. But the Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 says so, not Aaron. The Aaronic Levitical order, therefore, has passed away. That is the argument that the writer to the Hebrews is making. It has passed away. It was never intended to be permanent. Before there was Aaron and before there was Levi, before there was Moses, before there was his law, there was Melchizedek. And he argues to this extent, saying that in a sense, Levi, as a priest under the old Mosaic economy, bowed down to Melchizedek. You say, how so? He didn't live for hundreds of years uh, more. Well, in this sense, that Levi was in the loins of Abram. When Abram gave a tenth to Melchizedek, really all of Israel was there in his loins, including Aaron and Levi. So, so in a sense, they submitted to Melchizedek in this act of, of Abram. Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem, and the first to be called a priest of the Most High God. Melchizedek is indeed a mysterious figure, but he's very important. Although the narrative of Genesis does focus in upon Abram and his descendants, it is clear that God was doing more in the world than just working through Abram. You can get that impression, can't you, as you picture that ancient world? You can get the impression that maybe Abram was the only one on planet earth whom God had called to himself. Here we are shown that that it was not the case. In fact, God was doing other things too. Uh, He had called out of the world this man, the king of Salem, this righteous king of peace. Whatever God would eventually do through Abram, and his descendants, that is the nation of Israel, it is clear that there was a priest king that was prior to Israel and greater than Israel to whom, God, to whom God's redemptive purposes would eventually return. Melchizedek was a type of the Christ who was to come. That's a lot for me to dump on you all at once, brothers and sisters. But, but do you see that, that our Christian scriptures, our New Covenant scriptures, the book of Hebrews, and indeed Paul and all of his writings, They make much of stuff like this. Though it's easy to just gloss these things over and to say, well, that is insignificant. The pages of Holy Scripture actually say, this is the point. This is the thing you need to recognize. This is why we are Christians, New Covenant Christians, and not Old Covenant uh, Jews, Israelites. Because the Christ has come. And it was to this Christ, Jesus the Christ, that Melchizedek pointed, even in this episode, as Abram gave a tenth to him, and as Melchizedek blessed Abram, the greater 
blessing the lesser. As we conclude, I want to make just a few suggestions for application. First, I want to return very briefly to that point that I began to make earlier and to encourage you, uh, to as you look out upon the world, ask the question, what impresses you truly? What impresses you more? Those people and things that the world would consider worthy of historical mention or God's redemptive history? What impresses you more? Who do you fear? Who are your heroes? Are they, are they the faithful or are they the worldly? I think there is a lot for us to think about here on this point, you see. Open up a, any newspaper and, and begin to read. You know, we do it, I think a lot of folks do it, at least on their phones nowadays. Open up and see what the headlines are. See who it is that the world is giving attention to. And it's so easy for us as Christians to get caught up with that, with all of the celebrities, with all of the sports stars, with all of the big names, the world powers. It's easy for us to just be as much infatuated with all of that as the world is, to be lured by it, just as Lot was, I think, when he moved away from Abram, when he separated himself from the real story. That was the story of God's workings within uh, is working out of his redemptive purposes. It's easy for us to get caught up with that very same thing, just to begin uh, to, to, to fear and to grow impressed with and to be allured by uh, these worldly things. If we consider what Holy Scripture reveals, we see that God has, has always been working in the world, but he often works through very small, insignificant, and relatively unnoticed things in the world. And so I think we should consider this. How is it for you? What impresses you? What grabs your attention? Who do you fear? Who are your heroes? Are they the faithful or are they the worldly? Let us adjust our perspective so that we see the world as God sees it and not as the world sees it. Secondly, we need to again consider Lot. He is still an important figure here. Consider his way. Remember that he was drawn to Sodom. And I do not doubt that he belonged to the Lord, for he will eventually be rescued out of Sodom. I think it is in Genesis chapter 19. But remember that Sodom was alluring to him. And look where it led him. Are there any lot-like tendencies in you, therefore? That is what I ask. Are there any lot-like tendencies in you? Is there any tendency in you to be allured by the things of the world, the passions of the world, the pleasures of the world? We must guard against it, and we must consider where it will lead. The world can seem so alluring and so appetizing, but look where it leads. Lot separated himself from the blessing of Abraham and eventually he's just simply consumed. He's caught up by the world. He's carried away into captivity and he must therefore be rescued by Abram who is also a type of Christ. And so it must be said to the people of God, is there any Lot-like tendency in you? Does the world seem appealing to you? We must put that to death within us, lest we be carried away into a different kind of captivity ourselves. Thirdly, I would ask you to consider your redemption in Christ Jesus and to consider it carefully. How happy Lot must have been to see Abram. You ever think about that? There are so many details that are left out of this story, but how happy Lot must have been to see Abram and to have been set free from the oppression of the tyrannical kings that had not long ago overwhelmed him. 
And what I am saying to you, brothers and sisters, is that your redemption in Christ Jesus is much greater. You were in bondage to a far worse and far more fearsome and powerful enemy. And you have been freed by someone far greater than Abram too. You have been freed by Christ Jesus the Lord, the one to whom Abram would eventually give birth uh, in the process of time, who would come from his loins. And you have been freed to freedoms far more precious. And so I would urge you on this Lord's Day to give thanks to God for your redemption in Christ Jesus and to remember that you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, and that you are not to use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but so that through love you might serve one another. Galatians 5.13 Fourthly and lastly, would you take some time to consider Christ, your great prophet, priest, and king, and to remember that indeed all that you need is found in Him. In this figure, Melchizedek, we saw combined the offices of king and of priest. In Christ, we find that He is our great prophet, priest, and king. What does that mean for us, practically speaking, though? I would point you, actually, to our catechism for help. It answers the question. Question 26 of the Baptist Catechism What offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? What offices does He carry out? What offices belong to Him? Christ, as our Redeemer, executeth the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in His state of humiliation and exaltation. And then, 27, how doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? What does He do as a prophet? What does it mean for us? And the answer is, Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by His Word and Spirit the will of God for our salvation. That's what prophets do. They reveal God's Word. And that is what Christ has done supremely. He reveals the will of God to us for our salvation. But what about the office of priest? How doth Christ execute the office of, of a priest? The answer is, Christ executeth the office of a priest in His once offering up of Himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. That's what priests do. That's what priests do. They offer up sacrifices to God to satisfy divine justice. They reconcile people to God. They serve as an intermediary of sorts. And they intercede also. They offer up intercession between God and the people. And we are saying that Christ has done this supremely. He did not offer up a sacrifice, but He offered Himself up as a sacrifice for us. He truly and fully has reconciled us to God. He has brought us together with Him again. And He continually makes intercession for us. There is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus our Lord. And we should rejoice in these things. But what about Christ as a King? How doth Christ execute the office of a king? The answer is that Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. This is what kings do. They conquer and they rule. And thanks be to God, Christ has done this on our behalf. The first thing that he has conquered is Ourselves, He has conquered us, so that we came to say, Jesus, you are Lord, and you are King. And then He goes on ruling us, and He does what kings do also. He defends us. 
Kings defend their people and Christ defends us. And He continues restraining and conquering all of His and now all of our enemies. Thanks be to God. Christ is our great prophet, priest, and king. So consider Christ in that way and give thanks to the Lord for Him. And come to Him daily, momentarily, as prophet, to hear His word. As priest, give thanks for His atoning sacrifice. And as king, bow your knee before Him and call Him Lord day by day until He calls you home. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for this great and mysterious passage in Genesis 14. Uh, Truly, it is amazing to think of how You have worked in the world uh, from the moment we fell to this present day and how You will work until all things are brought to a consummation. It is incredible to consider. Lord, help us to understand Your Scriptures. Help us to understand the significance even of this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, and what it means for us. Uh, Father, help us to apply these truths to our lives. Lord, sometimes that work is difficult, but help us to slow down enough today to reflect upon Scripture. Uh, Father, we do ask that more and more each day we would look to You as our great prophet, priest, and king. Lord, subdue us more and more. Teach us Your will so that we might obey You. And also help us to appreciate the sacrifice You have made on our behalf. Strengthen us in the faith, we pray, to Your glory, honor, and praise. And all of God's people say, Amen.